你好，我叫斯科特杨，我住在温哥华，加拿大。我在学习中文、韩文、法语、西班牙语、葡萄牙语和马其顿语。你正在听《The Fluent Show》。Welcome to The Fluent Show, a podcast all about loving. Living and learning languages. Hello, everyone. My name, as always, is Kirsten Cable from FluentLanguage.co.uk, and I'm here to tell you about anything and everything interesting from the world of learning another language. And today, particularly from the world of learning, and not just any kind of learning. Today, we're going to get like serious. We're going to get deep. We're gonna work hard. We're gonna ultra learn, and I've got the—I was gonna say the inventor of ultra learning here with me. I've got the utmost authority of ultra learning here with me, Scott Young, who is a writer and he's just written a book called Ultra Learning. Hey, Scott. Oh, it's great to be here, Kirsten. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Excellent. So I've got、um, I've got your bio here, and I'll introduce the listeners to you,、uh, and then I want to mention where people might already know you from on the internet. So officially, this is what it says: Scott Young is a writer who undertakes interesting self-education projects, such as attempting to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in twelve months. Because why would you? We'll find out why, and or learning four languages in one year. He lives in Vancouver, Canada, and Scott. The four languages in one year was that the year without English? Yes, yes, that was the project, the year without English, which I, I did with a friend, where we went to four different countries:、uh, Spain, Brazil, China, and South Korea. And the method that we used was that as soon as we arrived in each country. We didn't speak English to each other or to anyone that we'd meet, and just tried to speak the language we were trying to learn and see how far we get in each country. Wow! And what's it like when you when you? I can't imagine. So you you, you when when did you stop talking English? I was thinking about that reading Ultra Learning because you describe your first、yeah. sort of arrival, and I was thinking, when did they stop talking English? Did they like leave the aeroplane and then suddenly it was like, "Hola, hombre," or did they? At what point? No, it you, was like the was airplane's、really、landing. Like there's, there was a look that we're sitting with each other <gasps> when we were on the plane. So I remember we had a、um, a layover in, I think it was Frankfurt. We had a layover, and it was like, all right, this is the last time speaking English.、Um, and so we we were we were kind of joking with each other, you know, that sort of nervous prep. And and then as the plane's landing, it's like, hola, vamos. <laughs> like it was it was a bit like that. And then we're gonna start doing it. I mean, I wouldn't say that we were perfect. It was a year long period of time, and I think especially in Asia, we did have a few hiccups along the way. But、um, yeah, we for the most part, I would say that you know, aside from a few exceptions. We weren't speaking in English, and、uh, that definitely accelerated the language learning process, as you can imagine. And I also think for a lot of people who hear about this project, because we've talked about it, a lot of people think, "Oh God, that sounds way too difficult." But actually, we found it a lot easier, or at least I found it a lot easier than my previous attempts to learn a language while traveling when you are not doing full immersion. So we can maybe get into that as well. But I think in sometimes, in sometimes, the、uh, the situation is that. 
the somewhat harder method or what appears to be the harder method ends up being easier just because it creates the right habits and environment to allow you to learn more effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's something to, once you're out of your, once you're out of your everyday or once you've, once you've taken step one, you, you, you get momentum, you start moving. Now you have long come back obviously from your year abroad, which languages are you still maintaining if any? Uh, all of them. So I, I make maintaining the languages uh, a priority. Now, I think it is more difficult to maintain things perfectly. I think, um, you know, I would say that there's probably some things, especially the kind of daily life stuff that I don't live in Korea, for instance. So going to a restaurant and ordering in Korean is not something I do very often, but I do try to use uh, our good friends and sponsors, uh, italki.com to maintain the languages. So right now I'm maintaining French, Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin, and uh, Korean. Oh. Um, say that I, I would say that I've worked hard on improving my Mandarin, but the others are probably about the level that I left off at. Well, you've built me a nice bridge and sort of already stepped on the mm. bridge and the segue <laughs> to the episode yeah. sponsor beautifully. Ah, oh, that's where we are heading. Uh, but it's mm. it's so fascinating to hear about this. And listeners, Scott and I have already been, I think, nerding out about education and learning for a good 15 minutes. And then we, we said, oh, you, we've got to press record at some <laughs> yeah. point. So there's lots yeah. and lots and lots in this conversation. So let's give our sponsor the time and attention that they deserve, because then we can really get into this interview and get into the, the good stuff. So if you are like Scott Young, if you are like Kirsten Cable, if you are like you, and you are excited about learning another language, one resource that I, we no one no one who teaches themselves a language and uses the internet almost nobody would go around recommending this resource and that is italki our wonderful wonderful sponsor with this platform you can find one of 10,000 teachers so there are over 10,000 teachers to choose from in any language that you should desire, almost any language you should desire. You're going to select your teacher and then you can just pay per lesson and find a tutor that can fit your budget and also fit your availability. Now, Scott, you live in Vancouver. I live in mm -hmm. Canterbury in the UK and we're making it work with the time zones. And have you found that <laughs> no matter if it, if it's a Brazilian Portuguese tutor or if it's a Chinese tutor or a South Korean tutor how difficult or easy have you found the scheduling with them oh the scheduling is is totally fine I think you'll always find people that will fit your schedule and even sometimes if you're in a really weird time zone situation where someone is way ahead or way before you there's always people that are live that language and they, they're native speakers, but they live in a different country. <laughs> so you can have a conversation with, for instance, someone who is fluent in Korean, but they live in the United States or they're fluent in Spanish, but they live in France or something like that. And you can get the right time zone for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've had, I've had a, a Spanish tutor who lived in Switzerland. I've had, mm -hmm contact with obviously i've learned german because i already know german but i have had contact with a german tutor who lives in vietnam so you really you're so right because i took i talk suits i think the um traveling teacher it it really is time zone flexible so time zones not a problem your budget not usually much of a problem and if you want to try it out 
to use an italki tutor and you've never tried italki before and maybe you're sort of thinking, oh, I don't want to spend any money. How about some free money? I've got some for you to support the Fluent Show and get your first 10 US dollars for free when you join italki. I've got a link and that link is fluentlanguage.co.uk slash italki. Head there, get some free money, support the Fluent Show. Everybody's happy. Thank you for helping me introduce the sponsor, Scott. Oh, great. Well, I love them, so it's great. And thank you to Itoki for sponsoring the Fluent Show. Now, let me let me start perhaps at the start. Scott Young, how did you get mm -hmm. into learning? Have you always been into learning? <laughs> I like how you say learning, learning. Um, I have always been a curious kid. I've always liked learning things. I think for me, uh, my sort of path into learning started with, as most people do, having to learn in school. And so I was interested in sort of learning in that context and just, you know, how do you, how do you get your classes done? How do you get good grades without having to put in too, too much work? And then, uh, sort of around my third year of university, I had the opportunity to go on an exchange to France. And in this time I was thinking, you know, it'd be really great if I could learn French. Um, I'm Canadian, so we do a little bit of learning French in school, but I have to admit that like, I couldn't even say, you know, the simplest thing after a couple years of French, basically just being taught by people who also didn't speak French in my French classes in my small town at home. And so I was interested, you know, and I should learn French, this would be great. And after a couple months, I'm, I'm living in France and I found out, you know what, it's not going as well as I would like. I'm, I'm studying really hard at home. I'm working really hard. And I just felt like I wasn't making the progress I would like to be making. And it felt like, you know, everyone around me speaks to me in English all the time. They're not speaking to me in French. And so it was around this time that I got introduced to someone that I'm sure many of the listeners here are already familiar with, Benny Lewis. And Benny Lewis to me was sort of an interesting character right off the beginning because he had these challenges where he was trying to learn a language in this very short period of time. His website was even fluent in three months after the name of his sort of quest to be able to do this. And so I found this, you know, very provocative, but also very interesting. And so he kind of started me down this path of thinking about learning not only languages, but other subjects in unconventional ways to maybe be more effective because his approach to learning languages was very different from how I was approaching it. And yet he seemed to be getting better results. And so I sort of thought, you know, maybe maybe there's a better way to learn languages. And so I applied that and I felt like after a year of living in France, I did do all, all right. And then I went on to do this other project, which was closer to Benny Lewis's own approach of, of learning these languages in an even shorter period of time. Uh, but then also learning other skills and, and trying to really that kind of thing kind of sparked my what is the what is the real essence of how learning works and, and what kind of places can you take it? What sort of interesting projects can you do? So something I, I heard you say that I really want to highlight for, for the yeah. listeners again is you moved to another country and it didn't instantly make you fluent. Because sometimes oh, I hear yeah. that. I think a lot of mm. people who listen to the Fluent Show already know that that might not quite work. But to have somebody who really experienced this um, yeah. or, or by yourself, um, I think that's really one to highlight. And you moved with the intention of learning French, of getting better at French and felt yeah. stuck. 
You know what? It's so funny that you mentioned that because there's kind of two types of people that I, I found that I've had some interaction with. There's the first type of person that's never lived abroad and they just assume that if you live abroad, you will learn the other language. So people well, like, of course, if you if you live there for any length of time, you're going to learn whatever language that is. And then there's the people I talk to who actually did do that. And you will be surprised at how infrequent it is. I would say that for people who live, if you're, let's say you're an English native speaker and you go to live in a European country for a couple of years minimum, I would say that's when you start seeing the majority of people learning the language. But when I was doing my exchange, for instance, I was very interested in learning this language. So I decided to, you know, talk to all the people who had been on exchange the year before. And I was like, you know, did you learn the language? Because I'm very interested, you know, do people do this? And the thing that I found was that except for the people that had already spent a couple years studying the language in school, so they were already speaking it somewhat, no one learned the language. So there wasn't a single person who had gone from the exchange cohort that didn't know it before they landed and learn the language. And I thought that was very interesting. And if you talk to people, if you've had this experience before, you know, it's just super common. And I would say that, you know, I mentioned that a couple years for European languages is sort of where you start seeing that tipping point where now actually, you know, if you've lived in Spain for five years, now you start to see most of those people speak some Spanish. But when it goes to Asia, I haven't actually noticed that there's ever that tipping point. So for people who have lived in China for 20 years, they don't speak Mandarin or people have lived in South Korea for 13 years. I was talking to a guy there and it doesn't speak anything other than rudimentary Korean. And I think that that's just a very common situation where you go there and you form what I call an English bubble of people who just talk to you in English all the time. And it's very difficult to break out of that. And so I think a lot of people kind of take for granted that, oh, if I travel, then I'll just it'll just be easy. I'll automatically learn it. Whereas I think you actually really have to engineer the situation to to create that kind of result. Mm -hmm. And in ultra learning, I think you give a you give a very good example of the the commitment and the mental commitment and in a way the temptation that that mm -hmm. comes up and that applies to yes, we've moved to a foreign country and we want to learn a language, which isn't most of us, but it's there's always temptation to to stray from what you want to do so <laughs> let's get yes. to i guess let's get to the the challenges and the intensive learning project so mm -hmm. first of all listeners scott's written a book that's why he's talking to me but <laughs> i'm glad he is talking to me because it's an interesting <laughs> book it's called ultra learning oh, thank you uh, it's out um, i don't know when exactly this podcast coming out but it's coming out after the book so it's out now and you definitely will find so much in there that can apply to language learning But obviously it's it's got it's got a bit of a name, doesn't it? Ultra learning. Tell me what what does that mean? Doesn't is an ultra learner right. somebody who I find it it sounds really intimidating. Could could anybody <laughs> do I have to you know what put is my so life funny. on hold? It, Tell me all about it. Yeah. You know what is so funny because um, I kind of set out to write this book because I wanted to showcase people like Benny, but also not in the language learning sphere, who have taken on ambitious self-directed learning projects and accomplished something really interesting and then use them kind of as the model to not only see how learning works in general. So not just talking about ultra learning, but like how all learning works. And then also to see, is there not something useful about this strategy? So the way I define ultra learning in the book is that it is a strategy for learning that is both self-directed and aggressive. So self-directed means that it is the learner who is 
choosing the project, deciding what to focus on, picking the resources, which is in contrast to how we're often taught to think about learning where it's in school and there's a teacher or a parent who's saying, learn this. And you often don't really know why you're learning it. You just do it because you're told. So we can all remember our language classes where someone gives us homework assignments and you're conjugating things and memorizing grammar and vocabulary. But it's not words that you chose. It's not that you decided at some abstract level, okay, this is the right way to learn and I'm going to do it this way. It's just someone told you to do it. And so self-directed learning is really where you are sort of in charge of your own project. And this has, I think, important implications because very often – you know, we can often talk about how a lot of language schools don't seem to work very well for a lot of people. And so if you just sort of blindly follow the formal education approach that often you won't get the result that you want. And then the second part of ultra learning obviously kind of goes in the name is that it's aggressive and aggressive is a hard thing to pin down. It's kind of one of those, you know, it when you see it kind of things. But when I was doing the research on the book, I think one important distinction to make is that it's not as if you know, just spending tons and tons of hours is what I'm talking about here. So doing 80 hours a week of learning is certainly intensive, but it's not really what I'm trying to highlight when I'm talking about ultra learning. What I'm trying to highlight is that there are different ways you can approach every hour of your studying time. And some of them involve things that are a little bit harder, maybe a little bit more frustrating, but nonetheless, much, much more effective. So in the book, I go through a number of principles where something that it on the surface looks a little bit harder per unit of time that you're investing, but for sort of deeper cognitive science reasons, actually is much more effective in terms of the results you get. So there seems to be a pattern here of not only ultra learning just being this you know, useful tool because it's self-directed and you can pick what you want to learn and, and approach your own projects, but also because it, it aligns with some of these principles of cognitive science so that you can learn more effectively. And I know that the name is somewhat intimidating, but actually people who have read the book often tell me, you know what, when I was learning X and I was doing it really well, this is what I was doing. I was doing it this way. So definitely don't think of it as an exclusive category that you have to be some sort of elite individual in order to apply ultra learning. It's really just something that you probably used before when you've learned things well in the past. And it's just trying to systematize that and refine that that method. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, in terms of the self-directed, that is mm -hmm. that is such a... I would say a fluencho principle almost. Yeah. This is such a, um, not necessarily like every learner of the fluencho loves to learn, um, <laughs> teach themselves. But I do think that's, to be honest, as adult learners, that is what we, that is what we do. And, and I, to me, the joy of, the joy, the pleasure of language learning, uh, uh, learning anything, to be honest, as an mm -hmm. adult, uh, it really doesn't matter what you learn. It could be art, it could be, like you say, public speaking, like you've got a Toastmaster yeah. in the book. I'm a Toastmaster. It's, you know, it's, oh, great, you yeah. learn a lot there as well. Mm. The joy of this discovery is really comes from it being self-directed and from discovering yourself and what you like and what you enjoy. So you've got a self-directed, I think, is is such a good match. And we do need more <clears throat> literature and research about self-directed learning and I just hope that with the internet and materials having become so much more uh, available we can move forward to to have this kind of discussion have this kind of debate so that's perfect on aggressive I want to highlight perhaps to myself perhaps to listeners as well <laughs> that aggressive sounds like a to, on the surface sounds super masculine and <laughs> 
yes, like, yes. you know because because that's 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 uh, how we socialize and i i don't think that that style of learning where you you know basically put a bit more energy behind it and you you really commit to the goal and you it i think to me the, the this aggressiveness the, it's not aggression <laughs> but it means prioritizing it over mm -hmm. a lot of other things and that is not a, a you know a privilege of the male or anything like that and you, or you don't need to be an aggressive person in order to in order to really commit to this and i i do think that the approach of coming to language learning coming to learning anything again in this challenge mindset or with the mindset mm -hmm. of going really intense is, you know, it really suits that, you know, the, the way you describe it as aggressive. So we are, we are talking about intensive learning projects. And mm -hmm. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. My gut feeling about that is that ultra learning as a project lends itself to something that is temporary, although you do in the book talk about sustainability as well. Yeah, so I think obviously the way that, uh, so the kind of more narrow definition of this ultra learning is that if it's a concrete sort of specific project where you're going to put in a lot of energy, and again, aggressive, I mean, choosing words, the English language sometimes doesn't have all the words that you maybe would like for describing certain things. And so the idea here is I wanted to also talk about intensity, but I think intensity even more so than aggressive lends itself to that um, idea of just putting in a lot of hours, which I'm, I'm careful to try to separate that off from what are you doing with your hours versus mm. how many hours are you putting in. And so the, the idea here is that, yes, ultra learning often involves specific projects, often of a short term nature. So it could be that it's a really intensive full time project over, let's say, a couple of weeks when you're traveling, or it could be, you know, you're putting in an hour a day, but that's a serious hour where you're focused. It's not something, you know, you're doing just sort of twiddling on your phone or, or that kind of thing. It's something you're taking seriously. And so there is a a kind of focused period, I think, of ultra learning. And I think that that's often very valuable because our own frustrations, our own obstacles and barriers mean that for many skills, and this includes languages, it's very difficult to get to a point where you're just putting in a couple minutes a day and still making progress. Mm -hmm. However, language learning, and this is something that I've experienced firsthand, is very often the thing that once you get to a level where you can use it comfortably, then you can kind of switch off of that really aggressive format and just focus on how do I make long-term habits so that I'm consistently using it and applying it in my life. So, so for me, learning Mandarin Chinese was really like that, that, that the first burst of it was quite intensive to get to a level where I can actually have a, a, a conversation that's not painful with someone and I can, you know, read a little bit and write a little bit. And so from that point, it was then a lot easier to shift over to, okay, I'm going to have a conversation a week, or I'm going to do a little bit of reading and listening on my phone and, and then use that to continually build fluency over the long term. So I view it again as a strategy, ultra learning as a strategy, which doesn't mean that it is the only thing that's right for all people in all situations, but rather a tool that you can use and very often is the best tool for some situations, even if for other situations, it may not be necessary. Mm. I love that. I love the, the language learning 
point of view because I, I do a lot of yeah um, I speak a lot about habits and and my mm -hmm. it's funny because when I'm tutoring when I'm coaching people naturally the kind of people I mostly uh, have those types of conversation with mm -hmm. are people who um, are on the intermediate plateau you know who have yeah. hit yeah. that sort of You, you really you're you've got a rocket start and then you okay here's my here's my space analogy that that is not based on my knowledge <laughs> of space travel travel so this yeah, is going yeah. to go well but you you shoot a rocket correct me if i'm wrong into the yeah. into the into space mm -hmm. and then it starts just floating around and normally you you jettison off like a bit right that sort of then goes into orbit and goes round and round and round and round and round. And, mm -hmm. and that is really the stage where you start building your habits when you're in orbit, but you've got to get up yeah. to, to be in orbit. And you're very right. I don't think you can necessarily expect because at the start, when you're really new to it, you're expecting results, right? So, and, and you've got the enthusiasm and you've got the curiosity really driving you and you're not quite mm. as tired yet of, Chinese or, or whatever it is that you're learning there's a well, real opportunity time yeah I'll say this just because there's probably some people who are listening to this right now who are in what we could call an intermediate plateau like they've gotten over the I can't use this language at all it's so fresh every single interaction is just pure frustration but they're like well not that good yet <laughs> like I can do it but I'm, I'm you know it's there's still a lot more I'd like to go further before I would consider myself truly fluent and I think for people in that situation I think there might be a kind of thing, well, okay, where he's talking about people who are just, just off of, you know, day one, how do you learn some, you know, Chinese or Spanish or something like that. But I think what is important to understand is I'm talking about ultra learning as a strategy, but when I'm discussing it in the book, a lot of these learning principles are really just kind of how the brain works, how it actually learns. So when we're talking about yeah. retrieval or, or directness or feedback or any of these kinds of principles, they do apply, I would think, even outside of ultra learning strategies, although in the context of the book, I'm talking more about that particular strategy for learning things. But definitely, if you feel like you're in approach of, you know what, I've been learning it for a couple years, I'm okay, but I'm not where I'd like to be. I think there's still a lot of lessons that you can apply from understanding the ultra learning approach, even if the way it integrates into your life is a more kind of long term habit. So Definitely when we're thinking about things, I think a lot of people neglect some of these cognitive science principles at their own peril and they end up spending a lot of time doing something that it won't actually get them to the destination, but they're not clear why it won't <laughs> in the beginning. And I think being clear on like what ingredients need to be in place for learning to successfully occur is so valuable. Otherwise, you end up wasting a lot of time. Mm. It's like as if you had as if you've got the navigation in your in your car or your vehicle set up a little bit wrong and you're full you're full on the gas but all you're doing is going around in a circle yeah if you have the and car you're like, in neutral but my and foot you have is it on, on the gas, gas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly oh yeah oh, right. that's right we can talk about this with with american car systems so i'm a stick driver so <laughs> oh yes yes of course of course right 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 i was like what's neutral i know i know neutral <laughs> so you already mentioned the yeah. the the principles of ultra learning which really form mm -hmm. the, the core of of your book and mm -hmm. i think i think it's worth it's worth us running through them maybe let's have a sure. very very quick one sentence summary of each if you're willing to so i shall to, i've got yeah, them here so i'll i'll read them out and then there's one that i am particularly interested in because uh, i recognized myself in that okay. section i recognized all of my weaknesses some of my weaknesses <laughs> <laughs> some slash most okay so 
uh, well, I'll start from the start and then perhaps give me a, a very short summary of, of each of these because we've got nine, otherwise we'll be here yep. for nine hours, right? <laughs> yes, yes, of course. Of ultra learning. And I agree, by the way, listeners, with Scott, that these apply to slow learning, fast learning. They're just good mm -hmm. learning principles. So let's talk about ultra learning principles from the book Ultra Learning sure. available on bookstores that are Amazon or the ones that are not Amazon. Don't always buy from yes. Amazon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Principle number one. Oh, well, yeah. I, I love how much you're pitching the book. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. It, yeah, yeah. He wrote a book, people. Okay, so. I, I, I did write a book, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Principle one, meta-learning. What is it? So, Why bother? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Why bother? Meta learning is uh, learning about learning, which sounds very obvious. It's kind of what we're doing right now is we're learning about learning. Mm -hmm. But in the context of the book I'm writing about is that whenever you approach any learning project, and this includes not only, you know, I've never learned a language before, so let's learn a language, but even I haven't learned this language before, you should do a little bit of research ahead of time to figure out what do you know what do other people do to learn the language what are the obstacles they face how does it break down and there's varying layers of sophistication of this so my sort of starting point is just you know do some google searches and 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 look up the basics but then there's also you can break it down into different components of skills and concepts and facts and devise some methods and strategies and find resources but this is basically your starting point for any self-directed learning project is you first do a little bit of work figuring out how to learn it mhm mm Principle number two, focus. Right. So learning particularly things that are difficult is going to require your entire attention. It's very difficult to do this while you are multitasking, while you have the TV in the background. But also, and really importantly, is that the obstacle many of us have to learning is simply that we don't put enough time into it. And putting in the time is more than just having the time. I think a lot of people make the mistake of, well, I don't learn a language because I don't have time. And I don't think that that's the reason. I think that we all have lots of time. The problem is that there are these frustration barriers. There are these emotions that we experience when we start doing a learning activity that make us say, well, Maybe what's on Netflix sounds like more fun. And so I think figuring out how you approach learning and how you feel about learning and how you procrastinate, why you procrastinate, why you get distracted and devising little tools to overcome those obstacles is so important because very often it is the case that, you know, it, you do have enough time to make the learning goals that you want to achieve. But sometimes our own frustrations, our own obstacles, our own insecurities get in the way of that. Mm hmm. Mm, that's very, that's a really good one. I teach this very little online course called Focus and Fluency where I spoke about procrastination. Mm -hmm. And in there, we talked about procrastination, but also about the idea, because people beat themselves up for procrastinating. And procrastination yeah. can be a stress reflex. And it can be even when you've set your goals so high that you your ambition itself intimidates you. And you, mm -hmm. you essentially sit there and do nothing because you, because to start feels like to fail. So I, I spoke think about also, that a little bit. Yeah. I think also procrastination occurs because you think about it in the short term. So definitely when you start learning a language, it is, uh, let's say awkward and unpleasant, especially if we're talking about like having a conversation with someone like, I don't know any German. So if right now I was trying to speak to you in German I would feel very awkward. I would stammer. I'd be like, oh my God, let's get back to English. This is so painful. 
And in that beginning phase, I mean, depending on how you approach learning, that beginning phase can last a very long time. But even if you are using the best methods, you're still going to have to face that beginning phase. And so because you're facing that beginning phase, very often people will procrastinate. Either they will not do anything at all to learn or they will use a sort of decidedly ineffective method because the thing that actually works is just so unpleasant that when they contemplate it, they're like, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm mm. going to do something else. And so understanding these emotions and again, not to blame yourself about it, but just to recognize that your emotions are, are just a very same part of the learning system that you're trying to work with as well. And understanding, okay, well, if procrastination is a real issue, can I just start to notice when I procrastinate? And then once you notice when you're procrastinating, can I devise little tricks to get past it? So one of the things, this isn't to do with procrastination of getting started, but of giving up too early that I found that uh, was happening to me a lot when I was learning uh, Mandarin. I did a lot of flashcards for learning Mandarin. And uh, I would find that when I would fail one of my flashcards, I would have this ping of like, oh, I hate this. And this, oh, I hate this feeling would make me want to stop. Okay, now is a good time for a break. Like, I hate this. <laughs> Let's take a break. And I found that that pang of frustration actually only lasts like a couple seconds at most. Mm -hmm. But if I made a rule for myself where I was only allowed to quit if I got the most recent flashcard right, you know, my ability to do flashcards just went up dramatically <laughs> because as soon as you get frustrated and, you're, and then when you get one right, you're like, no, this isn't so bad. Remembering things isn't so hard. And then you get some, make some progress and you're obviously going back between, oh, this is pretty good and, ah, you know, frustrated and going back and forth. And if you can just avoid quitting right on those brief moments of frustration, you go a lot further. And so this is where I'm talking about kind of designing your environment so that you can recognize that your emotions exist. You don't have to just feel bad about them, but mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, how do you develop little tools or little crutches, as I call it in the book, to avoid the worst tendencies you have so you can actually make progress on frustrating things, which language learning, especially in the beginning, often has quite a bit of frustration. And so if you know how to mitigate those influences, you'll put in a lot more time. And if you put in a lot more time, you will make a lot more progress towards your eventual goal, whatever that might be. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. And then it makes sense that the meta learning comes before this as well, because the time that you do put in, you, you don't want to be, honestly, you don't want to be putting like, I don't know, 12 hours of Netflix and then call that learning and then wonder why nothing's happening. <laughs> uh, because exactly that's right. not going to work. Well, no. Okay. Principle three. I promise this one will be quicker. I won't ask you questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. I love it. I love it. Principle three is directness. Mm-hmm. So directness really draws on this huge literature from the educational psychology research that basically says transfer, which mm -hmm. is when you learn something in one context, let's say like a classroom, and you want to apply it in another context, let's say in an actual speaking situation, that this ability to transfer is a lot harder. It's a lot worse than most people um, assume. So if you just had some naive expectations of, well, I learned this in a classroom, I should be able to use it in real life. The research shows that very often students are unable to do this. Mm -hmm. And there, there seems to be multiple reasons for this. But one of the big reasons is simply that the activity you're doing while you're in the class with your mind. So what's actually going on, the sort of mental processes is quite different from what you actually have to do in the real situation. And this discrepancy can lead to the fact that you've spent a lot of time, quote unquote, learning a language, and yet you still can't speak it. So I know we talked in the kind of warm up call we had about this, about how neither of us are super big Duolingo fans. And for me, 
my critique of them is is based on this principle of directness. And it's a subtle thing. It's something that I think a lot of new language learners would not even be aware of that this is going to be an issue when you are using their app to learn a language. But one of their main activities you do, they have a bunch of different activities. They're all kind of similar in this sense. But one of them is that they'll give you a sentence. Like I, I was trying it with Italian and it would give a sentence in Italian and then it would give you some English words to tap out or the reverse to tap out in order to complete the sentence out of a very limited word bank of, you know, maybe let's say 10 words. And the problem is that this activity of this is a sentence and I'm going to translate it from a list of 10 to 15 words and I'm going to tap on those that this activity of what's going on in your brain is very different from actually speaking to someone that you have to do something that's much more difficult and uh, you know not at all like this activity. And so you can spend a lot of time doing this activity. I don't think it will help you that much in being able to actually speak and say those sentences in real situations. And yet for a lot of people, especially people using Duolingo where they maybe aren't in a situation where they're having conversations regularly, they might use it for six months before they realize that, oh, there's this discrepancy or deficiency. Mm -hmm. And so directness is this idea that if you are learning something, you need to think about what is the situation you're going to use it and you want to make sure you're doing at least some practice that substantially matches that situation from the start or you might have this transfer problem where you spend a lot of time learning and then find out that actually you know, you're getting a lot less bang for your buck, so to speak, of mm -hmm. the amount of time you spent studying in terms of total effectiveness. It's the never, it's the everlasting bad, bad news that if you want to speak to people, you're going to have to speak to people. Yeah. It's which yeah, really it's, it's just, we can't escape mm -hmm. it. We cannot escape it. Mm -hmm. And, and well, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for, for starting your, starting your sort of adventure in a, in a safe space and mm -hmm. doing, you know, creating an environment that makes you feel comfortable to start. But even in that context, you still have to bear in mind that really, if you want to talk to people, you've got to talk to people and you just have to, you know what, you can build yourself yeah. a better, safer environment, but you still got to do it. You know what is funny? Because on, on the one hand, there's a kind of simple message of directness, which is kind of what we just said. If you want to speak to people, speak to people. If you want to read books, you got to read books, this kind of thing, if you're talking about language learning. But there's actually a lot of real nuance to it. And I think if you are, if you read and you really understand this principle, you can often identify subtle adjustments that will help with things. So mm -hmm. one of the things that I find even with language learning is if you are designing some kind of activity or, or something that you are doing to practice the language, you can immediately spot, okay, this is how this is going to be different from the situation where I want to use it. And how can I make these kind of subtle adjustments to sort of shift it into that direction? Um, and so I, I, you know, again, thinking about just uh, this activity that we were talking about in Duolingo, something that would have made the activity much, much better. I mean, not the same as speaking, but like a lot more effectiveness would have been if they didn't have a word bank, if you just had to recall the words. Now, this is a lot harder to do in an app because if you type it and then you don't type it exactly right, maybe it will grade it as wrong. So I think the reason they don't do this in the app is because the self they don't want to do self-grading and they, the computerized grading can 
be a bit too frustrating for people. But I mean, if you just made that one modification, all of a sudden what you're doing when you see a sentence and then you actually have to translate it from recall rather than from picking words in a word bank, you're all of a sudden getting a lot more effectiveness. So the idea of transfer is not just doing the direct activity, but also looking at everything that you're doing and asking yourself, in what ways does this differ from the real situation? And either do I want to make it more like the real situation or do I want to supplement it with some other activity so that I'm not, you know, just training this one kind of, you know, mental, uh, mental ability and then completely omitting this other thing that's going to be super important for, for eventual, the eventual goal that I have. And you know what, you would absolutely have fewer people downloading and using the app because it would require more brain power. And at that point, playing threes becomes easier. Right, because ultimately, well, yeah. a lot of what we do with with um, with language learning apps, nothing against them. If mm-hmm. you understand that a language learning app is ultimately like a, a brain training game, uh, and it, it is not exactly yeah. like Scott says, does not substitute for the process of fully. Oh, I don't. Uh, don't send me angry emails, listeners. Principle <laughs> number four. <laughs> <laughs> and on to the next one. I, yeah, yeah, I've, I've got a, I've yeah. got a blog post with like two hundred comments of people. You know, everybody's got their own opinion about oh, Duolingo yes, and yes. apps, and that's good because everybody's got experience of it. And hey, better than nothing. Principle number four: drill. <laughs> <laughs> so tell on me about drill. One. Do I need to join the army for this right. one? So drilling is a kind of an interesting complement to the last principle because if we think about, let's say. Let's think about a situation where people really know how to create performance. And I would say competitive athletics is one of those. And so if we're talking about basketball players, it's clear that in order to play basketball well, you actually have to play some games. If you never play a basketball game in your life, you're not going to be very good at it. So that's the idea of directness, which tends not to happen in basketball. Very few people will play, never play a basketball game and, and nonetheless do drills and stuff. But in the same sense, you also need to practice components of what it is to do a basketball game. So elite basketball players don't just spend all their time playing pickup games. They also do shooting drills and and layup drills and passing drills and, and various kinds of additional drills. And so the idea behind drills is that when you are learning a complicated activity, and languages are certainly one of these, there are so many things going on at once that very often one of those aspects can be very difficult to improve because you have to work on eight or nine things at tandem. So if I'm speaking a new language, I'm dealing with pronunciation. I'm dealing with conjugating my sentences properly. I'm dealing with recalling vocabulary from memory. I'm dealing with the fact that there might be some social dynamics going on as well. So if I'm you know, dealing with a shopkeeper and he's kind of ignoring me or, or this kind of thing mm-hmm. is happening and I'm feeling a bit awkward and I'm managing my emotions. And so there's like eight or nine things going on. They're all occupying your attention and it's difficult to improve at all of them simultaneously. And so the idea behind drills is that if you recognize, okay, this is a bottleneck for me right now, and I can't do all of this at once, then you can learn by, you know, separating off that bottleneck and working on it individually. And this is something that you, I think the idea behind this, and this is sort of one of the things is that everyone wants tactics. Everyone wants, okay, do this. And the problem is that often the effectiveness of learning comes from knowing why you're doing something and that it's very situation dependent. So for instance, I did a ton of flashcards when learning Mandarin Chinese. I think my flashcard deck, I think I have about 16,000 flashcards. I didn't do any flashcards for learning Spanish. So is 
are flashcards useful for learning a language? Well, it depends. And the reason why I didn't do it for Spanish is because in Spanish, I found I was able to pick up vocabulary and remember it from interacting with people, that it wasn't so hard for me to remember it. And so I just wanted to spend more time in actual situations. So yeah. watching Vocab television. Yeah, weakest point. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't a point, it wasn't a, sorry, it wasn't something that was so overwhelming that I couldn't just learn it from real situations. Mm -hmm. In Mandarin Chinese, I go up to people on the street and they say a word to me and I have no idea what word they say. They all sound the same to me. I couldn't distinguish tones back then. And it's just, I don't have any conceptual scaffolding to hook these words onto. So they would be in one ear and out the other. And it was very frustrating in the beginning. And so flashcards I found very helpful because they created this foundation of when someone would tell me a new word, I could say, oh, and like what characters are that? And then I would be able to recall, oh, it's like this word from this word and this word from that word. And then it would create this kind of scaffolding to remember these words and to remember stuff. And so the idea here behind drills, which is something that everyone knows about from learning languages, you all remember from classes where they make you go through grammar exercises and vocabulary and flashcards. So I'm not telling anything particularly new, but rather the motivation behind them and how do you design them? very important because I think a lot of people, they'll either do drills that they, you know, there's no real reason to do the drill. They've just been told to do it or they won't recognize that they should do a drill when they're having a very specific kind of learning challenge. So that's the thing that I'd like to add to this discussion. It's not the idea that grammar exercises and flashcards exist, but when you would want to use them and, and that sort of background understanding I think is often missing for new language learners. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. I, for me, as a as a Welsh learner, I've been I've been doing Welsh for you know I'm in my fourth year of learning Welsh. I can I can talk Welsh. I can mm -hmm. I can watch TV in Welsh as long as I've got the subtitles on the subtitles in Welsh. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm totally like functional. And now is kind of the time when I I do sometimes sit down with the grammar book and just go through the grammar exercises because mm -hmm. I feel like okay I can I can now take out a specific bit. And then just go, yeah. okay, I'm just going to do that bit. I'm just going to do, how do I say would, you know, like how do I use the, I don't flipping, I don't even know what they're called. <laughs> I don't know, chapter chapter five of the grammar book, whatever it's going to be. Right. But, you know, like I actually work my way through it and I go, okay. And it's almost a way of self-testing and evaluating myself at this stage and going, well, do I know this bit? Uh, you know, like, do I have it under control? got it okay and then I can move on so it's I use it partly as a self-test which I think we're talking later about um about the, the, that's the a good segue I think the next one yeah, is exactly. uh, retrieval right yeah so it's half drill <laughs> half retrieval and yeah. the fifth principle is retrieval how do we like that I didn't even know I was doing right that. <laughs> yeah oh it's perfect just teeing me up here so retrieval <laughs> retrieval is this really interesting principle because when I was writing the book I had no idea like I, I had this list of like these are what I think the principles are just from my own experience and reading books and I didn't put retrieval on there I thought well you know it's kind of part of feedback or it's part of this sort of directness principle this kind of thing and doing the the research on it was so interesting to see how like researchers fine slice these kinds of questions and one of the things that really surprised me was just how important retrieval is separate from all the other principles that we're going to talk about so again retrieval is not just one of these other ideas it is its own idea and the idea behind retrieval is this that if you want to remember something that you ought to practice actually recalling it from memory and not looking at it And this is something that I think intuitively we understand a little bit with learning languages. And yet, when we talk to students who are in classes and ask them what do they do to study, a surprisingly 
large fraction of them will just look over their notes or they'll recopy their notes to give them something to do. This is not very effective. So if there was, if you are in a class and you are studying for a test, do not do this. <laughs> it does not work very well. And there's a very interesting study that shows exactly not only why it doesn't work very well, but also why students still do it nonetheless, done by Jeffrey Carpicki and Janelle Blunt. And in it, they took students, divide them into different groups. One of the groups they told, okay, you're gonna do the classic student studying strategy, repeated review. You have the text, you just read it over and over and over again. The other group they told, you're gonna do free recall. It means you read it once, you shut the book, and then you try to recall everything you can from memory. The reason it's called free recall is because there's no questions or prompts. You're just trying to remember everything you can. And they asked the students after they did this, how well do you think you learned the information? So what's your self-assessment of how well you did? The people who did repeated review ranked themselves very highly. They said, you know what, I've learned this material, I know it. The people who did free recall were like, oh wow, I don't know this information at all. And then they tested them and they got the opposite result. So the people who did repeated review did worse, much worse than the people who did free recall. And so the reason why this retrieval principle seems to be so important is that when we do uh, review, so we just look over a list of vocabulary, for instance, over and over again, or we read our grammar examples or just anything when we're doing repeated review, it will make us more and more familiar with it. But familiarity is not the same as being able to recall what the right answer is in the right situation. And that being able to bring up knowledge and activate it in the right situation is actually a somewhat different skill. And so as you get more and more familiar, you get more and more confident, but you may not be practicing the actual skill that you need. And so retrieval is very important. I would say one point, because we're talking about languages, and so this can be a little bit confusing, that if let's say you are reading a book and you're, let's say you're learning Spanish, and you're reading a book in Spanish, you might say, well, that's, you know, Scott told me you shouldn't be doing, uh, you shouldn't be doing review, you should be doing retrieval. And so if I'm reading in Spanish, then that's review and that's bad. And it's actually a little bit more confusing for language learning because there's actually two different tasks. So one of them would be retrieval using the foreign language as a prompt. And one of them would be retrieval using the English language or your native language as a prompt, and then you have to produce the sentence in the foreign language. So those are both retrieval, but they are different retrievals. So in some ways, they're actually somewhat different skills, and it is possible to be able to do one without the other. Although going from foreign language to native language tends to be um, an easier form of retrieval, although there are some exceptions to that. Okay. I'm with you, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> The, it Sorry, that was a little technical. But this reminds I think it's me. <laughs> this reminds me of a, a, a top tool that we do every every six months here mm -hmm. on the on the show. We have a top tools episode, and there was a top tool that Lindsay, my co-host, brought to the show, which was writing prompts, creative writing prompts. Mm. You know the kind of thing where it's like yeah. you, f you find a note on the table, and I've actually used it at language retreats that I host with with students. So you find a note on the table, and there's lots of blood around it. What happened? Write the note or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. actually you know it's a it's just a creative writing prompt, but you yeah. write in your target language. You know you just kind of mm. go for it, and it kind of sort of reminded me of that, which is this sort of. You know, I mean, it's it's ever so slightly yeah. removed from retrieval because it's really that final stage of learning. You know, if we're thinking of blooms, it's it's creating with with your language, but mm -hmm. it's it's just a really fun prompt, and that that was I feel that that was very inspiring. But I've tried it myself, and it's really hard. So oh, it is definitely yeah. Even yeah. even in even in my stronger languages, okay. Mm -hmm. We've had so far, listeners, meta learning, learning about learning, focus, 
directness, drill, retrieval. There's four left. Let's crack on with feedback. Feedback. Yes. Yeah, so feed, feedback is obviously really important for learning, but I think one of the things that was really interesting going into the research on feedback, so getting a little bit beyond just feedback mm-hmm. is good, uh, was how much nuance there is. And indeed, there's a lot of research showing that in some circumstances, feedback can actually be bad. So in one of the meta-analyses that was, uh, it's a real famous meta-analysis done by Abraham Kluger and uh, Angelo Denisi, they found that in, I think it was about nearly 37% of the studies that they looked at, feedback actually had a negative effect. And the reason why is that the context that surrounds feedback is very important. And what message the feedback actually contains is important. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there is a lot of feedback that is actually not very helpful, either because it doesn't provide any useful information, so it doesn't give you anything you can help with, or it influences people's motivation. And because it influences people's motivation, it can sort of make it harder for you to learn because you're less willing to put in effort, which is, I think we all know a situation if... You know, someone we were talking about this, I think, in the warm up show that uh, corrections and whether or not your teacher should give you corrections is a really interesting topic because for some people, they really want corrections. They want that improvement. And for other people, it just it's just a shock to their self-confidence every time and they're not actually able to produce the language. And so I think on the one hand, feedback is very important. And I talk about a lot of the ways that it impacts learning. Certainly, there's lots of situations where it's not even possible to learn without feedback. So if you were to learn to ride a bicycle and you had no idea whether your bicycle was upright or not, that would be an impossible learning task. But on the other hand, um, there's also situations where feedback can be negative. And there's also situations where people overreact to feedback. So they make adjustments that they shouldn't make um, to, to feedback. And so I think you know, the nuanced picture, of course, I think if you want to get the full description, you'd have to read the full chapter. But the idea of, of feedback here is essentially that you need to be aware of feedback and you need to be aware of your, not only your own response to feedback, but also where it's helpful and where it's not. And I think mm-hmm. some people go the other direction with language learning and assume that Um, you know, if you're not correcting every person's mistake as soon as they say it constantly, that they won't possibly learn the language. And I actually don't think that that's the case because very often what the person needs is they need to just actually practice speaking in a bunch and they don't really need to be told whether they're doing it right or wrong because, you know, they can just self-match their own model of what the language is supposed to sound like in their head. And they probably only need correction on like, you know, 5% of instances and even if they're making mistakes, it's much more important that they just get that bulk practice. But this is, again, one of those little nuanced pictures that is often missed by new people where they either think they need tons of feedback or they go in the other direction and they never get feedback or they choose activities that have no feedback and then they don't learn. So it's it's a really interesting um, topic, feedback. Mm. I will also, on um, in addition to that, so there's an episode that I've done that is about being overcorrected and what to do when you're Mm. feeling overwhelmed in language lessons. That's episode 94. So listeners, you'll find it in the show notes for this episode, all of which Mm -hmm. I'm going to put in the little description so that you can kind of click on it. Uh, But you know, fluent.show is where we're going to find all of this. So I'll put lots and lots of links in there. I've got about three episodes that kind of relate to this. If you really want to go deeper in those, on those different topics and feedback, really, it can even be um, um, a reaction in the face of a person that you're speaking to or you know it, it can mm-hmm. be it can be it doesn't have to be spoken it doesn't have to be a full-on evaluation it can be as simple as your other person's body language but i haven't got time for this i need to move on to the next principle <laughs> it's your fault for writing nine scott 
Yes, yes. Could have done I, free. I, I try to got to keep you busy. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I got to keep you busy here, Kristen. That's good. Okay, principle number 7 is retention, which is oh, mm-hmm. that's where I get interested. So, cuz I talk a lot yes. about sustainability and that's I, I care oh, about that. Oh, for a language lot. learning, this is so important. Oh my god, cuz language learning is a memory intensive subject and memory intensive subjects tend to suffer from this mm-hmm. uh, deviations from this principle I will see more than others. And so there's two particular problems with retention. So one is short-term retention basically you're putting new vocabulary, new grammar patterns, new phrases into your head all the time when you're learning a language, and then they're coming out the other end, you're forgetting them. And so there's this balance between learning and forgetting, and if the forgetting is too high or you're you're not able to learn it, then you're not very efficient. So you may be hearing a word a dozen or more times before it's actually sticking. And so I don't want to say that there's a magic panacea that you can just apply and it will automatically allow you to learn everything perfectly, but rather... There are some short-term methods that do seem to be helpful. So we've talked about, I'm sure people are aware of some of these space repetition systems, mnemonics, um, even just uh, some ideas that are not as common in language learning, but I think are super important. Things like overlearning and proceduralization are very important uh, principles Mm -hmm. or tools for for short-term retention issues. But then there's another issue, which is long-term retention, which is that you've learned your language, you were actively practicing it for a period of time, you got to whatever level you were comfortable with, or or you didn't, and you just got uh, obsessed with other things, and you just had to move on. And then the question is, how do you maintain that language? And this is a super big issue, because obviously, I did this project where I was learning four languages in a year. So you learn four languages quickly, you are going to forget them quickly as well, mm. if you don't do anything about it. And so one of the big things for me was how do I make sure that after this trip is done that I don't say, well, I learned them, but I can't speak them now because like what would the point be then, right? And so for me, um, one of the big things was setting up a schedule of maintenance so that I would be able to continue to practice it using our friends italki.com. I I set up uh, tutoring. So in the beginning, I was doing once a week uh, half-hour lessons just, just to have a brief conversation just to maintain it. And then um, I switched to a lower frequency in the years that f- followed, but it really helped for being able to make sure that it was on the tip of my tongue and also to um, integrate those languages with each other because obviously when you learn a new language, it can interfere with your old language. And so um, having continuous practice where you say, okay, I'm going to speak in Portuguese now and now I'm going to speak in Spanish. Okay, now I'm going to speak in French. You need that in order to keep them uh, separate in your head. Otherwise, they tend to overwrite each other. Mm. This is fascinating and I think this is this is really relevant for a lot of listeners because often I get questions about learning multiple languages at the same time and th- funnily Absolutely. enough the episode I did that just out <laughs> last week was about how to maintain one language while learning another so we we looked at that as well and I think this this chapter in particular um listeners if you I don't know, I can't be bothered writing the book and uh, writing the book. Well, don't write the book. If you can't be bothered <laughs> buying the book, perhaps, and but you maybe order it from your local library, get libraries involved. Yeah. Um, and or you know, you just go to the shop and just read principle seven because that's a good one. So <laughs> yeah, my, just my go there and just just dog ear it for the next person. That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and then just walk out. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. Buy the book, buy the book. That's what we're here for. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> when did I be- when did I become the shopping channel? So principles number two and number seven to me they were they really felt like like something mm-hmm. not new but something I want to read again. You know, like because all of these obviously having done doing what I do, I've come in contact with all of these naturally. Mm-hmm. But those were kind of interesting. And then the next one is it, to me 
next eight and nine are the most intriguing ones. So mm. uh, let's let's spend the last. Well, we filled the whole podcast intuition. with going through the principles. Yeah, let's yeah. let's fill fill a little bit of time with. Got to give the listeners some bang for their buck here. So, the <laughs> intuition principle is basically this is a harder one to to sort of describe in a short term. But the basic idea is this one is a, a little bit more for conceptual subjects. So my sort of background thinking about this were things that are difficult to understand. Um, but there's definitely a connection to language learning here. And the idea is essentially that um, what people tend to view as someone being extremely smart, uh, which it certainly exists, there's definitely differences in, in, in innate intelligence and in this kind of thing, but that there is often a gulf of ability because people have these sort of highly developed intuitions that tend to come from large exposures to experience and practice. Mm -hmm. And so the way this manifests itself in language learning is that it's often the case that you'll see someone who's been practicing a language for a while and they're speaking fluently and it's very easy to dismiss it of, well, how the heck does this person do this? Like, I don't understand how they, they can, like, I yeah. can't understand. I don't have to brain for this. How do they possibly, they so how do they, yes, how do they possibly do this? And this is something that I've seen come up a lot with let's say learning let's say chinese right because chinese is often seen to be as, as a quote-unquote hard language but when people are speaking chinese and they're speaking really quickly and 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 there can be a feeling as a new learner when you're learning chinese and you're learning to listen of how can chinese people possibly tell what words people are saying because they all sound the same and there's these tones that people don't follow the textbook pronunciation of the tones or or the like sort of really standard pronunciation of the tones and there's all these words blurring together and this kind of thing and it's easy to throw up your hands and say, this is impossible. How do you possibly do it? And so in the book, I cover a lot of research on what is known as chunking. And the basic idea is just it's showing sort of the mechanism for how the brain is able to take really complicated situations and make them comprehensible, make them even something where it's intuitively obvious what the right answer is by binding these smaller pieces of information, these smaller patterns in over time. And so the way that I like to do it, so one of the sort of examples, and I always have to do this on the top of my head right here, but if I were to say the words uh, FMC, uh, BBI, and then IAA, and I asked you to repeat those to me, you would probably struggle with it. Maybe you'd have to write it down. Now, if I said FBI, MBA, and CIA, very few people would have difficulty repeating those letters, even though they're exactly the same letters. I just changed the order. And the reason why is because FBI, MBA, and CIA are chunks, that these are patterns that we recognize as cohesive holes, even though we know what letters they contain. And so language learning is often the same way that when you don't understand what someone's sentence is, the problem is that you don't have enough patterns. So it's a lot of little pieces of information that are like the first letters that I told you about that are all coming at you at once and you can't keep them in your head long enough to parse what the sentence means. In contrast, as you develop more experience with the language, as you learn more of these patterns, which is something that you do through applying these other principles, you start to uh, bind them together. And so when someone's speaking a sentence, you understand it in one flash rather than as a bunch of little pieces that you have to do a bunch of mental, you know, rejiggering in order to get the right answer. And so intuition is not only the process of how you do this, but how you apply this, particularly for learning subjects that just seem baffling, like physics and math. But obviously, there's a lot of baffling parts of language learning that it applies to as well. Mm hmm. That's, oh, wow, that's so much less esoteric than maybe I would have liked it to be. <laughs> but at the same time, it is very, very 
true. And I think like what, what you said right at the start really, really feels, feels important to me. This idea that somebody even who seems like a natural Mm-hmm. isn't necessarily a natural it's just somebody who's had all of this exposure all of this mm-hmm. exposure and often in language learning like something that i i bring up to people a lot or that i i push back on because i say to people that i do languages for a living so i get a lot of people's reasons yeah. why they can't and <laughs> <laughs> you know and i get a lot of mm-hmm. like oh could have started earlier should have started earlier children learn better so i i often say like children don't necessarily learn better they're just around it all the time we give them all of this space to fail and we give them a few years where we expect them to basically be really stupid <laughs> so you know which which we as adults don't we don't allow ourselves that time naturally and nobody else allows mm-hmm. that because you've already done the you can't just rechild yourself um in that way so i think that's that's really really interesting and like you i love the way that you also say memorization and and obviously chunking the 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 research really really important to to understand as well and i love the way that you 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 bring this example in by the way did you know that there's a german hip-hop group who have got a song that is all the lyrics are abbreviations Oh, really? Yes. No, I didn't know that. Yes, the, the Fantastischen <laughs> Vier. And the song is called MFG, which is Mit Freundlichen Grüßen. So it's it's how we sign off, or how we, I don't know if people do it anymore mm. with emails, but it's how you sign off a letter. So it's just like best mm. regards. Um, but yeah. for a long, long time, people would abbreviate it and just write, you can do it to somebody who you're sort of informal with. You can write MFG mm. um, and just go, yep, <laughs> that's it. So the song's called MFG and it's full of these. And that almost brings another thing in, which is exposure through through music, which is basically music is is repetition. So you, mm-hmm. there will be people out there. Like sometimes, you know, sometimes I hear a song from the nineties, like literally the Venga Boys or something that level of quality, <laughs> and I know all the words. The Venga Bus is coming. The yeah. Venga Bus, exactly. The Venga Bus is coming, and what is the next line? And everybody's jumping. But I know that, but I've totally forgotten what like the Chinese is for whatever I was trying to learn this morning. <laughs> yes yes it's annoying but it's, no, it's you know catchiness repetition mm-hmm, repetition mm-hmm. and yes and and also like the pressure being off so anyway i got going off on one there last principle we've made it god we've made it yeah made it. experimentation <laughs> tell tell me tell me about this this sounds so fun right please tell so me it's experiment, fun yeah so it's kind of the compliment for the first principle so the first principle was see what other people are doing to learn something as your default, as your starting point. And so the last is sort of, you know, in fitting with this, that the last principle would be, and then, you know, experiment and try your own thing. And I think this is the the last principle I wanted to leave with, because I think we were talking about this before the show, that a lot of people, especially people who have successfully learned something, develop very rigid opinions about what the right way to learn it is. So I'll tell a little story. So I go to this Chinese meetup uh, here in Vancouver. We meet once a week and there's this guy who is sort of, he's very good. He's fluent in, in Mandarin. And so occasionally there's been new people here who have gone to the meetup and he has very strong opinions about what's the right way for them to study. And if they're not using that way, he's very dismissive of what they're doing. He's like, no, no, you should be doing it like this and you should be doing it like that. And people sometimes want that from you. So I get a lot of people say, what's the right way to do this or what's the right way to learn that? And really what I've tried to do in this book and what I've tried to do with a lot of my teaching is not to give you the right answer, but to give you more answers. And I think that 
part of the reason we get stuck when we're learning things, part of the reason that we don't achieve the success that we want, either with learning a language or with learning anything in life, is because we have a narrow and rigid vision of how we're supposed to learn it. And when that fails, we just give up, we get stuck. And so experimentation is really this mindset where you broaden all the possibilities you have. So you don't just have you know, an app or a community college class. You also have meetups, you also have italki, you also have flashcards, you also have PIMSR, you also have graded readers, you also have, okay, I could not, not only approach it with mnemonics, but space repetition systems, and you have this huge library of tools. And so meta learning was about filling out that library, but at a certain point, you have to start, you know, inventing your own tools and creating your own approaches to learning things and experiment with different approaches to not only find what works for you, but also to overcome your own challenges. And so I'm kind of anti-dogmatic when it comes to what is the right way to learn things. And instead of saying, okay, everyone should study like this, I want people to understand, okay, what are the principles behind learning so that you can understand why some things might be more effective than something else. So you're not just doing things randomly, but at the same time that you are in a mode of exploration and that you're, okay, let's try this out for a little bit and see how it works. And so I think, you know, the unfortunate part is a lot of people have been encoded and, and really programmed from a very young age to think that there's one right way to learn things and you have to do what the teacher says and if you don't do it exactly the way they told you to do it that you're going to get a bad grade and 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 this kind of thing and I think this is really unfortunate because the learning in real life is exactly the opposite of this it's trial and error it's experimentation it's hmm let's try this for a little bit and sometimes those detours lead to dead ends but you also learn more about the process than if you just follow a formula. And so I want people to think about learning in this way. And so this principle is all about applying those ideas of experimentation. Yeah, it makes me so happy that that, that is there, that that is a, a principle that is on equal footing with all of the others, because mm -hmm. I, th I think it's it's very much what I what I build if there is a philosophy to, to fluent, mm -hmm. uh, which there is really, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the principles that I think I have on the front of my website is like lang mm -hmm. learning a language, you know, you, you know, everybody can do it. You, you, you're not too old. You're not too stupid. You, you, there is mm. a way that you can do it. And if you find a way that works, if you, if, you know, if you find that your way, even if your way changes three months later, don't matter, right? If at the mm -hmm. moment where you find it, it can be fun as well. This reminds me of yoga with Adrian, this, this super successful yoga channel on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Which is all I ever do on YouTube is watch yoga videos. And <laughs> like, really, I, I don't use YouTube yeah. in any other way. Uh, <laughs> not that I watch yoga all the time. And mm -hmm. her catchphrase is find what feels good. And mm -hmm. that is something that, that, we can we can use for all aspects of life, I think. Well, you know, we were talking before the show that, um, you know, I, I was joking, obviously, ultra learning this book is not specific to languages. Uh, but I had to really resist because there's so many, so many times when language learning is like the best example that I had to, I had to express self restraint to not make the entire book just about language learning and the various characters and people who are involved in this uh, community. And I think it's very interesting because uh, without naming any names, there's obviously some people who are very 
have a very specific method that they use and they really feel strongly that it's the right method in, in language learning, not only as a, a learner, but also as an instructor, people have very strong opinions about what is the right way to teach languages, for instance. And I think uh, for me, just adopting this anti-approach to me, what ultra learning is all about is not just this, again, not just this idea of doing things really intensely in this sort of masculine, violent way, but rather it's this idea of opening yourself up to their being all these different ways of doing things. And so I wanted to show off all these different people who approach learning in very different ways to give you the sense of the breadth that there are so many different ways you can solve your problem and to give you some starting points to not just so that that, that obviously can be overwhelming if there's a million ways to do things, where do you even start? And that's what meta learning is important for. But at the same time, to recognize that to really get into this is to, again, find your own path and do this kind of experimenting approach where you, all right, let's try this method, let's try that method. Hmm, where do I think this is going wrong? Where do I think that's going wrong? Integrate, work on it. And and really all learning projects proceed from that basis. And so if you can adopt that mindset of experimentation, it's just so valuable. Mm. Yeah. It's, oh gosh, I, I love that. I think that's, I think that's a really valuable insight. I'm really glad that that's in um, a book that's going to become a bestseller and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and of course it's going to happen and hey, why not? <laughs> But you know, it's, it's, it's an important, I really, I really do believe. And we were talking right at the start about how ultra learning, when you take, I, I, my personal choice is definitely to to lean into the self-directed uh, more than the aggressive, although mm -hmm. I think I could I could use that aggress aggressiveness at some point <laughs> and lean into that self-directed because that is where the fun starts. And that is, if you're listening to the podcast, you know that that, that is, you know, like the exploration, the adventure, the, the freedom to know you're not getting it wrong, you're not doing it wrong, you're not too stupid is, is important and it's mm. an important part of all of this. So wonderful. Scott, I, we, we've, made it, we've made it through the nine principles and we've, we've talked a little bit about your book and obviously if people want to learn more, I've already mentioned the book 17 times, he's written a book, people, it's called <laughs> <laughs> Fluent Farm and, and it, it's a really, really good match. So, so check it out if you wish. It's called Ultra Learning. It's um, probably out now by now and I'm going to obviously link it in the show notes. Scott, I have one final question for you. Out, sure. of, out of all the skills, tasks, exciting stuff in the world that you haven't learned yet, what's calling to mm. you? Oh, wow. You, my, my to learn list, like the things that I have on my like docket of, I like to learn that. It's just so long that I, it'll take me multiple lifetimes if, uh, if that to be able to accomplish. And so some things that I have never done much before, which I'd really like to do. So I haven't done much with music. So music interests me. Um, I've, I've learned sports obviously as a kid, but I think some kind of physical activity, they present some sort of interesting challenges, having sort of motor movement and this kind of thing, as opposed to more like heady subjects. Uh, but then there's lots of things that I'm really interested in, like niching down on that I already have some base, but you know, I'm interested in learning that specific thing. So 
for me, um, you know, I'd really like to get to the next level of learning Chinese. That's been a sort of an ongoing goal for me. And uh, maybe if I get to a, a point where I feel really comfortable with, I might switch back to learning like classical Chinese or something like that. I think that's very interesting as well. So really the list just goes on and on and on. So for me, it's much more about prioritizing and picking the projects rather than uh, not having enough desire to learn things. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's, it's been, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, this interview has been a lot of fun and, and I oh, hope, I hope we'll, we'll, we'll be able to chat more at some point, uh, because it's so much fun oh, to sure. connect with, with other people who also see learning as pleasure rather than a chore. Well, thank you. This has been really great. I, I've got to say, I'd, I'd love to be able to take you with me. You're, you've been very uh, enthusiastic <laughs> about the book, and uh, <laughs> it would be so great to uh, to have someone who's um, so confident and, and positive about learning things. And really, to anyone who is here, obviously, you can uh, check out my website at scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. Not Neil Young's child. Links to the book as well. Yes. And as well, uh, anyone who's listening to this right now that is interested in ultra learning and applying maybe to a language learning project or to learning something else, I would love to hear about it. Um, I'm very interested in hearing how people are applying the ideas. And it's also good feedback for me as well to see, you know, what people are taking as the takeaways and doing differently as a result. Perfect. So the way I sign off here on The Fluent Show is by saying it's goodbye from me and then inviting my guests to have the final word and to be able to say goodbye in any language of their choosing. So we're going to do that now and maybe even keep recording and I still haven't got my act together on Patreon, but this would be a perfect extra conversation, sort of an after dark one. Anyway, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from my guest Scott Young. Well, thank you so much for having me and for everyone who's listening uh, who understands the Mandarin right now. 下次再见。<laughs>